Welcome to the Prison Mindfulness Podcast, presented by the Prison Mindfulness Institute. In this podcast, we'll be talking with experts in the fields of prison mindfulness and prison dharma, discussing their transformative work in prisons and jails. Hi, welcome to another session here on the Prison Mindfulness Summit. My name is Fleet Mall. I'm your co-host for this session, and I'm really happy to be here today with Reverend Kaylin McAllister. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's really great to have you. Thank you so much for being part of our summit. I'm going to tell our audience a little bit about your background, and then we'll jump right into the conversation. Sound good? Sounds great. Okay. So Reverend Kaylin McAllister is a Zen Buddhist priest based in St. Louis, Missouri, where she has spent years organizing groups of people to fill and distribute backpacks to the homeless. She has spearheaded the publication of Start Here, a resource guide for the homeless veterans and released felons. A former prison chaplain, she also facilitates a meditation group to discover ways to aid men and women in prison and to assist them upon their release. She is the founder of Laughing Bear Bakery, a company that employs former uh, uh, felons, released uh, prisoners. This stemmed from a promise she made to inmates who share their fears of being released and the challenges they would have finding employment. Uh, just a little bit on, on Reverend McAllister's Zen background. Uh, uh, she was ordained in 2007 at uh, Rumonji. Is that correct? Rumonji Monastery. Rumonji, Rumonji Monastery, which is in Iowa. Uh, longtime practitioner of Zen, was active in the Missouri Zen Center for many years. Uh, in 2009, she received an award from the Women's Buddhist Council in Chicago for her work with prisoners in several Eastern Missouri prisons. In 2004, she co-founded Inside Dharma, an organization dedicated to assisting prisoners in practical matters, as well as supporting their practice of meditation and Buddhism. Kaylin received Dharma transmission in March 2012 from her teacher, Shokin Weinkoff, at Rumonji Zen Monastery in Iowa, and was later formally recognized as a Dharma teacher at two, the two principal Soto Zen monasteries in Japan, Eheji and Soji. Okay. Well, again, thank you for giving your time to be part of the summit and uh, really looking forward to this conversation and learning all about your work and especially the bakery, which you're quite renowned for. We'll get to that. So, but first of all, tell us a little bit about just your background with Zen and meditation, how you found your way into the the path of meditation and Zen. Okay. um, I was, you know, I kind of gave up Christian religion and I think at age 13 or something. And, Made it through my life and ended up, uh, I had friends in San Francisco and ended up going to the San Francisco Zen Center. Mm-hmm. I was very impressed. Um, came back to St. Louis, thought I would look at, look it up, find a Zen Center here, got busy, didn't do it. This back and forth for several years. And then I had a year in my life where everything went upside down. You know, I had a lot of deaths in my family. I was sued in my business, um, et cetera. So I started looking for them a meaning of life. And so I ended up at the Missouri Zen Center under my first teacher, uh, Rosan Yoshida. Mm-hmm. And I, I was there until about 2009 or so. I started in 1993, 2009. And then I switched to Shokin Weinkoff, who's at Ramanji. And was ordained, um, and then later, as you said, Dharma transmitted in Japan. Mm-hmm. 
And so then from there, how did you get interested in prison work? When I was still at the Missouri Zen Center, um, we got a letter from a guy in prison who, who wanted someone to write to him. So me and one of the guys were supposed to write to him. He never got around to it. I did. And then the next thing, he requested that I come visit him. And I was scared to death to walk into prison. Um, but luckily, Thupton Children was in town. Ah. She was out at a temple, um, a Chinese temple. And so I expressed to her my fear of going into prison. And she said, I'll go with you. So both of us ended up going up to Bowling Green, Missouri, um, to the prison. We met this gentleman, and he asked us um, to start a Buddhist group. And Buddhism was not recognized by the state of Missouri at that time. Um, they recognized nine other religions. So I came back to St. Louis. I gathered up. Um, well, I talked to the chaplain first and said, I want to start a group. And he said, can't do it in just one prison. You have to do it in all 22 Missouri prisons. Huh. So I gathered everybody up that I knew that were in robes, and we headed for Jefferson City, which is the capital of Missouri. Attendant uh, meeting there, um, presented our case. It took about a year before they approved it, and then we started going into prisons. Mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah, wow. And um, and was that, had Tupton Children already begun her prison work at that time? Do you know? Oh, yeah. She, she yeah, had she'd been doing it for a while. Yeah. yeah. That's what yeah. I thought. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. We're very happy she's on our summit as well. I had a great conversation with her and she said to say hi to you. I'm very happy to hear that you were going to be on the summit. So, um, so you got very involved in prison work. Somewhere along the line, you became a prison chaplain. Were you actually working for the Department of Corrections or were you a volunteer prison chaplain or? No, I was actually um, working for the Department of Corrections. Uh -huh. um, I, I was like seven years a volunteer, and mm -hmm. it's called a VIC, Volunteer in Corrections. Mm -hmm. And I went to about eight different prisons on the side of the state uh, during a month. Um, some of them weekly, some of them biweekly, the further ones once a month. And there was three openings for prison chaplains, and I applied for all three of them and didn't get one. And one of the guys, the only reason I didn't get it was he had a doctor's degree. I didn't. So they hired him. About a month later, he stepped out of it. And mm -hmm. so the deputy ward called me up and said, it's yours if you want it. You don't even have to interview again. So I took it and entered in, um, at first part-time as a prison chaplain. And, uh, mm -hmm. and absolutely loved it. I, I love working with the guys. This was a level four. They changed the levels in Missouri now, but at the time it was level one through five, five being high security, the highest security. This mm -hmm. was a level four. I really enjoyed working in the prison. Um, they, they told me that a prison chaplain was just an administrator, that all you did was arrange for other groups to come in. And I decided it should be more. So I started work. I started going, first of all, to DSEG, the whole, which I really liked. Um, I liked the energy in there. Um, I started printing off materials from the different religious groups and including games and puzzles because they're, they're so bored in the whole. 
And then I decided to do hospice. So I did hospice and started doing a lot of different things that a chaplain normally doesn't do. And I worked as a chaplain for five and a half years and then decided, um, you know, Farmington's a long way from St. Louis. It's about an hour and a half drive. So I'd have to get up at 3.30 in the morning to get there, leave the house at 4.30, get there by 6. And then I did four days rather than five. Um, so by the time I got home, it was 7 p.m. I had time to eat, take a shower, go to bed, get up. 3.30 the next day. Oh, my goodness. Wow. So after five and a half years, I was getting older and decided to retire. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how was that? Was it different um, from you've been already going into prison quite a lot as a volunteer uh, when you became a chaplain and were actually working for the DOC, had that official position? Did that change things much or change how you were perceived or change the nature of the ministry or? I going in I was I was going in to, to be a teacher of Buddhism. As a chaplain, you're not teaching any group, you're just no. overseeing it. So we had a Buddhist group and I got volunteers to come in and run it. Um but it gave me kind of a more openings to to reach more more people mm -hmm. you know, on a different level perhaps. One thing in Missouri, most of the um I would say 80% of the chaplains are Baptist, mm -hmm. and probably the other 20% are Church of God. Mm -hmm. um, they didn't know what to do with a Buddhist. Right. <laughs> but, but the deputy warden, who was my boss, and I became, he's an atheist, and so him and I really hit it off. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and he, he's still involved in the bakery very much so. Oh, great. Yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. You know, during the years I was in, there was still a lot of. Uh, I was in from '85 to '99. It was still really dominated by, you know, Baptists, Evangelicals, and so forth, and uh, a lot of antipathy towards other religions, and um, you know, just barely tolerated the Black Muslim groups, and and you know, barely tolerated the Native Americans and and the Buddhists and the other things, you know. Uh, they didn't even like the Catholics very much. Exactly. <laughs> but but um, and, and actually, you know, I, I found often we never we had. Well, eventually we did have a full time Catholic chaplain. Initially, we just had contract priests that came in. But often the Catholics were the friendliest towards the Buddhists because they share some contemplative background, uh, at least in parts of Catholicism and so forth. But but it really did start to change even while I was there. And I, I found just by being in relationship with uh with the chaplains we had uh, and uh, through the hospice work and other things, I was very involved with them for time, you know, they softened and changed. And, uh, uh, but a lot of people don't realize that chaplains are actually uh, trained just to meet people where they are. Um, and, you know, when you're doing actual ministry as a chaplain, you know, you need to be prepared to, uh, to just really meet anybody where they are, regardless of their faith. And if you need to bring in another resource of somebody's faith, you bring that in. Uh, but in prison, as in many prisons, chaplains are mostly just doing paperwork. And I remember the, the, the chaplains at the federal prison where I was, they lamented that they had very little time to do ministry. They would get up and go do the rounds in Ed Seg and try to get up into the hospital because it's a federal prison hospital. But they were just mired in paperwork a lot of the time. 
dealing with all the requests, all the religious requests and all the different groups trying to come in and out and all that kind of lawsuits and all and all the rest of it. And uh, so I don't think people always have a clear idea what chaplaincy is or prison chaplaincy is. But it sounds like you were able, nonetheless, to have that be a vehicle for you to actually connect with uh, with the prison, with the men there. I assume it were these all male prisons. It was. Yeah. Yeah. To, yeah. to really connect with the men and 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 have some kind of influence, some kind of positive influence. Yeah, you know, I I really enjoyed working with the men. I didn't care what religion they were. You know, mm-hmm. it was like um, where they were coming from, and you know, um, and the guilt they were feeling, and a lot of things like that. You know, I. I was like very appreciated going in the hole. Most mm-hmm. guys said they've never seen a chaplain e- even enter the hole. Oh, wow. And uh, so I, it was a regular thing. We had four units in DSAG and I would do two a week, you know, one every night. And then I would go do hospice before I left. Um, wow. So. Well, that's, I mean, Kai, you know, and I, I hope we're going to have a very large audience for this summit and uh, uh, beyond just the people already doing this work. And so that they really get, you know, in terms of the people already doing the work, it's kind of we're kind of talking to the choir. But uh, but people often don't realize how dedicated prison volunteers are. I mean, like your situation where you're getting up at three thirty in the morning, this is even when you were an employee. But I'm sure it was similar as a volunteer driving long ways to get to these prisons that are often set in rural, out of the way, rural areas. And you can drive three or four hours and, you know, then be turned away because your paperwork's not right and and all the rest of it. So, I mean, I, I'm just so humbled all the time by all the amazing prison volunteers that are all over the country that have such dedication to bring the Dharma, bring meditation and, and just bring humanity uh, into our prisons and jails. And uh, and just really, you know, applaud you for your many, many years of service and, and dedication. Really, thank you for that. So at some point, um, you know, you got inspired to start this bakery and you're really well known for that today. And and I, as I read in your bio, you'd also been involved in supporting people uh, who found themselves homeless and uh, and in different ways. You've had a lot of different kinds of ministry going on. So how did all this evolve into starting a bakery? Well, I was I noticed that, you know, when men were getting ready to get out of prison, they would come up to me up to the chapel and they go, chap, we don't even want to get out. Mm-hmm. You know? We're going to get out, you know, if they did their full time, which is called 1212, as you know, mm-hmm. if they did their full time, they would get out with like $8 and 50 cents and a bus ticket to where the crime was committed, not mm-hmm. necessarily home. Wow. And the bus would drop them at a curb, and then you know uh, they would spend eight fifty at the first McDonald's to get some real food, and then they were on the street. And sure, they're going to recommit. I would recommit under those circumstances. Mm-hmm. So um, on my way out, you know, and sometimes I regret this, but most of the times I don't. But I, I made a promise that I would start a bakery. I would. I didn't start a bakery. That I would find some business that would hire only ex-offenders. Mm-hmm. So um, I retired in April of two thousand and um, fifteen, at the end of April, and by November in two 
2015, we were up, we were at a, a bakery, we were renting space a couple days a week. I had written letters to friends um, asking for donations. We had $2,000 to our name. That was it. We, um, we hired two, two people, two men. Uh, we didn't have any equipment. We didn't have any ingredients. We had payroll over our head. We had rent over our head. And we didn't have any customers. And sounds like quite a business plan. <laughs> yeah, we still don't have a business plan, actually. <laughs> but, uh, but so in two weeks, I thought, well, this is going to be the shortest business in the world. And I picked a bakery because I thought most jobs that, that people get when they come out of prison is ugly work. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like refinishing floors where you're breathing in chemicals. Yeah. Right. Are you working on a dock? Are you doing something that nobody else wants to do? Mm -hmm. So I thought bakery would be fun. You know, you have to eat your mistakes, um, <laughs> so to speak. So I was sitting there thinking, well, this is going to be it. And I got a phone call from this man. Didn't know him. And he said, you don't know me. He said, I'm the CEO of a company. I heard what you're doing. And he says, I have 80 employees. And he said, I'd like to buy a pie for each of them for Thanksgiving. And he says, and I'd like to prepay for the pies. And I'm on my way over there right now with a check for you. Oh, my goodness. And if it wouldn't have been for him, we would have probably went under right away. And that got wow. us through to January. And then there was... um a little Catholic sister's home in the neighborhood where we were. And they, they gave us a little grant money and it got us through to spring. And then we started selling at outdoor markets and got some bigger grants, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And we just last year bought our own building. Well, it's not all paid for, but. <laughs> yeah. It's a nice, it's a, I've seen the photos. Beautiful. And uh, so again, when did you start it? What year was that? 2015. 2000, so it's just been seven years. Yeah, you're in your seventh year, and now you have your own location. Yeah. Absolutely wonderful. And how many, how many people do you employ? It goes up and down as the year goes up and down. Um, I think our highest number has been 12 at a time. Uh, we're at, right mm -hmm. now we're at five. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going into the pie baking season, so um, we may step it up. Uh, we have more space at this building than we had any place else. Mm -hmm. It was kind of a stopping point. How many people can you fit around an oven, you know? Um, but people stay different lengths of time. We don't have any program in place that says you have to, you know, move on in six months. We do it on an individual basis. I have one woman who just got out of prison. She got life without at the age of 17. She spent 28 years in prison. She just came out last year. She's been with us almost a year. And I think she'll be with us a couple of years because if you can imagine coming out after never having mm -hmm. a job before and facing all of this and hitting it in your face, you know, you need some stability. And, and we all love her at work and she loves the work. And so I think she'll be with us for a while. So how do your how do your um, your employees your team members how do they how do they find you or how do you find them? 
Well, I, I always say I have, had a reputation in prison. <laughs> no, <laughs> as you know, um, in Missouri, they move our they move guys a lot from one prison to the yeah. other because they get a fifty dollar for every time they move them. Yeah. So the guys in prison liked me; they really did. Probably because I was I could have been went to prison if I would have gotten caught. The right. only difference was I didn't get caught. Um, so when they got moved to another prison, they would tell people about me. So people find me when they get out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're still putting out a little newsletter called Inside Dharma. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've been putting that out for about 12 years, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talk about the bakery in there, too. Mm-hmm. And it goes all over the United States. So people find you by word of mouth. They contact you. And then what do they do in terms of housing and their other needs? Uh, they're, they're getting fresh out of uh, prison or jail, and you hire them. And then you know, how do they handle the rest of it? Well, if they're still, most of our people have still been on parole. Mm-hmm. So they're in some kind of a housing. You know, if mm-hmm. you're on parole, you have to go someplace. Um mm-hmm. But there's a program in, um, in, in St. Louis. It's a great program. It's called CJM, um, Criminal Justice Ministry. Mm-hmm. And what they do is, you know, they don't do it for everybody. But if you, you can mark, check the boxes, right? Um, they get you in an apartment, which you get like three months free. And then they start, you know, $10 a month, $20 a month until they bring you up to the rent. Mm-hmm. They furnish the apartment. Um, they send people to me. I, I've had probably three or four people come from them. Um, mm-hmm. So that's a really good program. They help you with clothes. But also I have a, um, I have like, I can't do um, living situations. I'm just, there's just one of me, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I concentrate on the um, employment, but we do put I do put out if somebody does get a place and they need something, I put out a request for beds, clothing, you know, whatever they need. Right. Mm-hmm. And people yeah. step up. Mm-hmm. So uh, do you, you have a, a, a Zen center as well in, in St. Louis, don't you? Your own Zen I center? Do, in Sanga, yeah. yeah? And it's in the bakery. It's oh, it's there, right? So, do your do your students get involved with the bakery for the most part, or um, not anymore? At first, they did, but mm-hmm. but not so much anymore. We've gotten the bakery's gotten a little bit bigger, uh-huh. and you know it requires a little bit more expertise. And uh huh, yeah, yeah. So, is it just you, and then everyone else is a former prisoner on your staff, or do you have some other staff? No, I have I have at least three essential volunteers uh-huh. that are incredible. They come in. Um, I don't know what I would do without them. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, they deliver stuff for me. They pick up, they shop for me. They, they're just great. They're just mm-hmm. great. And then the rest of the people there are ex-offenders. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, this is absolutely wonderful. Wonderful ministry that you're doing and so needed. And, you know, the whole landscape of post-release and transition for returning citizens in our society is pretty bleak. Uh, You know, initially, years ago, most of the, you know, halfway houses or transitional programs were religiously founded, many of them Christian, many Catholic, and some of them were great. Some of them maybe not so great, but but then it almost all got taken over by a for-profit community corrections industry. And I went through one of those for-profit programs, and it was it was just terrible. I spent three months 
in a halfway house and it was all about control and no support. And I, I was very lucky. I didn't get, I had a really good attitude and I was really trying to stay out of trouble. I did not want to go back to prison. I could have easily gone back just because they had a million rules that were impossible to follow and keep track of. Right. And it was really, it was any kind of actual employment support. It was kind of a joke. And so, you know, it's pretty bleak out there. And then, uh, you know, there's been um, many of us in the kind of prison dharma, prison mindfulness, prison yoga world that wanted to, you know, the idea of creating a, a mindfulness base or a dharma based halfway house or, you know, it's always been out there. You know, Sita Lawsoff, who's who's on our summit, uh, she and Bo had, a, had a, a bit of a transitional thing going there at the Human Kindness Foundation for a little bit. But but there hasn't really been much happen. It takes a lot of resources to do something like that. And so, you know, I'm, I'm just curious about, you know, it's also, um, you know, I think, I don't know, in our culture, we have a lot of wonderful values in our American culture. We have a lot of not so great things, the currents in the culture, a lot of shame and blaze kind of punishment, you know, and we're not very good at giving people second chances uh, in general, right? There's a stigma that people have when they come out of, out of uh, prison or jail. And so I'm just curious about what you think about that whole kind of re-entry post-release landscape and what we do, what we need to do to shift that and change that. I know at the bakery, I have a rule, um, a very strict rule that we never ask what anyone did. Mm -hmm. And we get a, a lot of media coverage and I put that out there. I said, when you come in here, we have a rule. You can't ask what a person did. They're trying to get past it, you know? Mm -hmm. And they will just totally ignore it. They walk up and stick a microphone in someone's face and, well, what were you in prison for? Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. And I'll stop it. I will stop it. I don't care what a person went to prison for. Mm -hmm. I actually don't care. Um, it's from this day forward, right? You know, and I've seen people come out of prison and they are so beaten down. They're so negative about themselves. And I've seen them change at the bakery. A woman made her first pie. It was a cherry pie. And she ran around the bakery screaming, I made this pie. I made this pie. And it was just like, you know, I could have started crying. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And we we do it. We, a couple of times we did a little thing where we have a morning meeting and we'll go around the table and I want everybody to say something positive about themselves. And, uh, I had to laugh because one day this guy goes, well, I'm really good looking. And I said, yeah, well, besides that, <laughs> you know, can you tell me something positive about yourself? You know, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, you know, it, it is a hard world. You know, you come out and people are, um, in fact, it, the last church we were at, um, we were there for about five years and, you know, really good connection with the people. But the pastor came to me and she said, um, you know, we, we decided on our board, we don't want any sex offenders here. So if you have any sex offenders, you need to let them go. And I said, well, I don't know if I do or not. And I don't care if I do or not. And it's against, I said, this is what's going to cause me to leave the church here, you know, and find a place of my own. And she said, well, I understand that. And I did. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, and, and I want people to feel good about themselves. I want people to, you know, to leave all that haunting nightmares behind, you know, and 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 approach the future, you know, approach the future. 
Um, but it is the hardest thing. I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's so hard. And, um, you know, that's that's been difficult. Uh, actually, even while I was in, I stayed in touch with people when they got out sometimes and found even some guys who were, you know, got really involved with some of the Christian churches that had really active ministries coming into the prison and wonderful volunteers that came in, really loved the guys up and it was very transformative. And then they'd get out and try to go to those churches and they weren't, you know, right. they met a lot of fear. And it's not just Christian, same thing in Buddhist organizations. Uh, you know, since I've been out, we've had in various states where I've been involved with different communities and so forth, including my own. Uh, we've had situations where people got released and, you know, started coming to a center. And then somebody heard that they, they had this crime or that crime. And it suddenly was a big uproar and people were uncomfortable. And, you know, especially around sex offenses and parents, they just freak out. You know, it's understandable, you know. But uh, but, you know, it's uh, everybody gets painted with one broad brush. Right. And, and you know, um, and, you know, if, if we can't give people a second chance, how, what are we just going to continue to live in fear of, you know, because you, you think you can just you know, we have this illusion in this country that we can take the people we don't want or we're scared of. And we'll put them behind bars and it's going to stay there and that'll just go away. But it doesn't go away. They all come back. They all get released. And, uh, you know. And it's also a reflection on ourselves, right? Because what are we afraid of? Uh, what we're most afraid of in others is usually that which we're afraid of in ourselves, I think, right? So it's a collective process of healing that we all need to be involved in, right? Um, yeah, so there's, there's there's such a distance to go. So what what would you, I, I don't know if you would have any encouragement or any advice for anyone in our audience who would like to get some kind of transitional programming going, whether it's housing or employment, a bakery or something or what, whatever it might be, some way to support, uh, because there's so uh, many people in our movement that really connect with people while they're incarcerated, who get very involved in various meditation groups and so yoga groups and so forth. Uh, but when they get out, they have, they feel like they have no place to send them, no way to support them. And even, you know, a lot of times the Dharma centers are out in the suburbs somewhere and, and, you know, even the released uh, uh, person may not feel entirely comfortable going there, even if they were welcome. Right. And so, you know, just so much work that needs to happen. I'm curious about, you know, if there's somebody that really feels that need, wants to get involved, but any advice you'd have or guidance? Well, I would tell them that to, to, when they first start out to work with a group that has done this before. Mm -hmm. And I look for community. There's a lot of things in a city, in the inner city, that's available. People working with ex-offenders that will lend space mm -hmm. and meet. You know, there's churches that are open. Um, mm -hmm. um, there are Zen centers in the inner cities, um, you mm -hmm. know, that are open where people could come meet. And, you know, a lot of like AA groups or NA groups are, are open to having people come in. And just to find a place where someone could come to and feel comfortable. And one of the things I think we have going for us is that when people come to work for us, they have something in common with the people working there. If you can imagine, you know, um, getting out of prison, and what do you talk to a person who's never been in prison? You know, they mm -hmm. go, hey, have you been to the ball game? Yeah. Well, you know, the last one that's been in, inside, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's like, I think our success rate is because of that. It's because people can, like, talk about their problems and their issues. And if we even have a volunteer therapist who comes in, 
that they could go out and complain about me if they want to, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's all private. I, you know, um, but that's a resource for them. But having a place for people to meet is is key, and and working with a group that's done this before, I, I, you know, just to go out on your own and and do something. I mean, Thupton Children was so helpful to me, mm-hmm. but also Robina. Robina came to yeah, see me yeah. a few times, went to prison with me. I just love the woman, you know. Um, and, you know, uh, other people, so many other people, you know, were guidance for for doing this. And, you know, one of the people that we ended up, this is kind of interesting, one of the people we ended up on our board of directors was George Lombardi, who was a former director of all the prisons in Missouri. Wow. And the way we got him interested in this is we named the cookie after him. Uh, uh, <laughs> we called it the Hardy Lombardi. And he just loved this. He retired. Um, you know, it was a political appointment. So uh, state went republic. He got, you know. But he got on our board and he went around and he gave talks. And he just passed away this spring, which mm. is a huge loss for us. But even my former boss, um, he's on our board of directors. Um, People who've been in prison have a heart for what needs to happen. They understand that this is impossible for guys just to get out or women just to get out and, you know, and make it on their own. You know, it's, boy, it's, it's an uphill battle. And the more people you could have that are open to it, one of my main concerns is we're in a nice neighborhood. Mm-hmm. It's a nice working class neighborhood. You know, there's dog walkers everywhere, bicycle people with open minded people. And I was afraid that people would know, you know, I'm pretty open about what we are and um, that they would object to this. But instead, I now have the neighborhood group coming in and sticking labels on bags for me, and they're getting hepatitis A shots so they could actually package food for me. And so I have a whole group of volunteers from the neighborhood. They're just wonderful. Oh, that is wonderful. And uh, where in St. Louis are you located? We're in Targrove South. Um, we're near uh, the Targrove Park, uh, Grand and Arsenal. Oh, yeah. So you're down in the city. Yeah. Yeah, we are in the city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah. Yeah, we were chatting before we got started here. I grew up in St. Louis and still have my, my family, all the rest of my family are still in St. Louis. So so we have that that connection. Yeah. Well, I I, I uh next time I get out to visit my family, I'm gonna have to come down and see the bakery. Oh, you better. Absolutely <laughs> you will. Better. No one has ever left hungry. Yeah, great. I absolutely we'll will. I'm sure you make all kinds of stuff that's not on my diet plan, but I'll <laughs> I'll give myself a, a pass one day. <laughs> Great. Yeah. We, yeah. We, we're kind of a more of a commercial bakery. We mm-hmm. are supplying stores. We have mm-hmm. we now have a, a place of you know that people could come in, have a cup of coffee, muffin or whatever, but we mostly yeah. supply stores. So. I'm curious if you've connected with some of the other, you know, um, my teacher, Roshi Bernie Glassman, started the Grayston Bakery. It's quite well known in Yonkers. And and uh, I, I'm not sure who I knew the gentleman that was running that for quite a while. I don't know if he's still there. And and I wonder if you ever connected with them or if you connected with Father Boyle out there with Homeboy Industries or any of these folks that are doing very similar things to you. No, but there's a people who gave me the idea to do a bakery. 
Mm-hmm. So my background is actually in chemistry. Mm-hmm. And I cannot cook. <laughs> I, I thought you were about to say being a chemist gave you, a, you knew how to do recipes or something, but I guess. Well, yeah, it does. I mean, baking <laughs> is different than cooking. Cooking yeah. is, you be creative. Baking is like a cup is a cup, you know? Uh-huh. Like, yeah. That's yeah. It's basically chemistry. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for um, for being part of our our summit, uh, Kaylin, and for the amazing work that you do. And just uh, you know, just I, I know how many uh, how many people have been touched by your love and compassion, and uh, just the way you show up for people and your dedication. So uh, it's incredibly inspiring to be able to spend some time with you today. And thank you so much for being part of our summit. Thank you for having me, and and I'm going to hold you too, coming to visit us. I will. I absolutely will. So, uh, in fact, uh, uh, I'll make a promise right now because I'm coming home for Thanksgiving. So, if you're going to be around, I'll uh, be around. You okay? I'll I'll come down. I'll come down with my wife. We'll come down and visit you. Fantastic. How can people find out um, more about your work with the bakery, and uh, and even how could how could they support uh, your work at the bakery? They could go to our website, laughingbearbakery.org. All one words, lowercase, laughingbearbakery.org. Um, and it tells you it has pictures of the bakery, some of our employees, um, you know, information, our products, um, our history, how we got the name Laughing Bear Bakery. I was just about to ask you that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I try to do it quickly here. Um, a friend of mine was Native American, and mm-hmm. she did all our paperwork getting us incorporated. And she passed away with breast cancer. Mm. And I wanted to honor her and name the bakery after her, but her name was Victoria. And we're just going to have a Victoria's Bakery because Mm. people would have thought of underwear or something like that. Right, yeah. So her totem was a bear, you know, Native American Mm. culture. Her totem was a bear, and she laughed a lot. Hence, Laughing Bear Bakery. Laughing Bear Bakery. There's a picture of her on their website. Oh, that's wonderful. Wonderful honoring her in that way. Well, I can't wait to visit the bakery and uh, really an honor connecting with you today. And uh, again, thank you for being part of the summit. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Great. I really encourage people to go check it out, laughingbearbakery.org. Thank you. Be well. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn more about PMI and our programs, please visit prisonmindfulness.org. You can also keep up with us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn.